<laughs> Beautiful. All right, I'm sitting here with uh, Trade Brewing with John Langhead Brewer and Dave Waldman, uh, co-founders of this fantastic uh, stalwart of uh, Indiana Fair. Thanks for doing this, guys. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for cheers. We've got to start off with a cheers there. Right on. Cheers. All right. Well, one of my favorite uh, jump-off points for for any conversation, especially with the breweries that I sit down with, is the origin story. You know, everyone's got a you know beginnings, whether humble or scary or yep. or whatnot. So I'd love to hear you guys' uh, origin story of how Triton came about. Uh, I guess personally, I started home brewing in 1990, and then uh, got transplanted here from Minnesota and got my foot in the door at Barley Island up in Noblesville. Oh. Uh, after nine years there, it was time to branch out, find something new. Yeah. Ran, I, ran into this guy. When I was 16, I wanted to open a brewery. Uh, I toured my first brewery. Uh, immediately fell in love with the stainless steel and the science and the magic and all the things that were happening there. Uh, in high school, I, my guidance counselor asked me what I wanted to do. I told him I wanted to be in brewing. And he thought maybe I should see an addictions counselor instead. But it, <laughs> wasn't really about that. It was really about, I mean, I had done some research, the history of brewing. The, it was just a fascinating, endless amount to learn about. And uh, so that became kind of my life's goal. Went to college, uh, looked at brewing programs. They, they, were, they were few and far between in those days. Um, ended up getting a four-year degree doing some grad school uh, in an area that was very craft-centric at the time. So it gave me uh, an opportunity to, to further explore the brewing world. And ultimately, the goal was this. So so for 20 years-ish, kind of muddled around trying to figure out how to get what is today Triton or something like Triton uh, to happen in my world. Uh, and when John and I finally were introduced by a mutual friend and another brewer at the time, uh, it, a year and a half later, we were off to the races pretty much. So, uh, yeah, for me, it was like the life goal, right? Uh, for John, too, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, we both loved beer since before U.S. law would say that it was appropriate for us to consume such a product. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but when we, like traveled and when we kind of started to see John's light bulb I think went on when you went to Germany right yeah. like yeah, 17 years old spent three months in Germany oh, wow nice and learned how to drink beer <laughs> <laughs> enjoy beer. place to learn yeah. yeah it's one of the best places so and I, I had the opportunity to, to go to Germany in high school went to uh, Mexico and tasted a variety of uh, premiums premium domestic Mexican domestics some of which were actually really fairly good and some of which were just like all right cross that one off the list uh spent some time in canada and had the opportunity to drink some beer up there uh belgium and it was just like yeah i mean the beer is much wider category than what we used to see when we were coming up and you know even it probably wasn't until the mid 90s ish maybe that the american beer culture kind of started to catch up and then in a lot of ways I think overtook international beer culture. Like once Americans got a hold of it, it was like, we got to do everything to the 10th power, you know? Like, but uh, yeah, so, and when we met each other, we had similar goals and, and uh, very different people. We're very much kind of the yin and the yang. He's kind of the ice and I'm kind of the fire. 
uh, I think, in a lot of ways, which is why the relationship really worked. And he's got a set of skills that I can't touch. Yep. Uh, Ditto. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can do things that he can't do or hasn't learned to do. I'm sure that he's capable of doing. Uh, but, yeah, we've been busy enough that he hasn't had to learn what I do, and I haven't had to learn what he does. And ten years later, we're starting our 11th year. Yep. So. It's fantastic because, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how everybody comes from. And what I loved about, you know, the people that I've interviewed to date, it's like everybody thinks it's a big blue ocean, but it's really a small pond where everybody kind of knows each other or has worked with yeah. each other in the past. Well, that's great. Well, one of the things I love about this, uh, this space is uh, creativity is like a hallmark of it. And that's always exemplified in the names of the beer. So what is, what is Triton's style for coming up with the names uh, of your lineup? Here, obviously, I'm a big fan of Rail Splitter. That was yep. my first experience with you guys, and uh, you know, trying some different flavors over the over the years and getting to know some of the seasonals you guys do. But uh, where the names come from? How do you come up with them? <laughs> so we used to do a like a creative writing lab, right? Everybody throw your ideas up on the board, and you'd end up with like 30 ideas, and then we'd vote, and we'd be like, "All right, these are the three or four or five that we like the best." And then you go out and you search on those names, right? And it's like, oh, we can cross all five of those names off because <laughs> other people are making them. So, and then you start over again. So, a lot of them are inside jokes a little bit or very Hoosier centric. Uh, Rail Splitter, uh, of course, was one of the names of Abraham Lincoln, who uh, spent part of his boyhood years in Indiana. So, but it was also the, the one of the original names of the Purdue University Boilermakers. Uh, at one time, they were known as the rail splitters. They were known as the cornfield schooners. Yeah, I think I the boilermakers is way better than the cornfield <laughs> schooners. No offense to the Purdue fans that are yeah. watching. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of our initial beers were very focused on that. Um, one of our big cult favorites is the Hatch Blower Pepper IPA. And, you know, that's kind of a double entendre, right? If you eat too many peppers, it's a hatch blower, whatever. But at the same time, um, that was the nickname of um, Virgil I. Gus Grissom, uh, one of uh, the astronauts uh, who unfortunately died in one of the Apollo missions. Apollo, I'm not going to come up with it. Anyway, um, his nickname was Hatch Blower. He also uh, learned to fly here at Fort Bend. Well... Or at least got his wings. He knew how to fly when he got here because he was a farmer and they used crop dusters to. Mm. But when he came to this, uh, at one time, Fort Bend was both uh, an army base, uh, the third largest in the country, but also the 10th Air Force was based out of here. So they had a lot of uh, army pilots here. Mm. So he got uh, certified here. So when we started looking at, you know, what, what kind of name can we come up with that's Indiana centric and. I'm kind of a sucker for astronauts anyway, because that's like, you know, almost Star Wars or something. So, um, and here's a local guy that had a connection to the neighborhood and had this terrific nickname, the Hatch Blower. Uh, what a perfect name for a pepper beer, right? And it's funny because we've had people that over, we've made that beer for 10 years, yeah. nine years, Long on and time. off. We usually make it a few times a year. Uh, sometimes it's available here. Sometimes we distribute it. Most of the time, uh, it's only available here. And we had people reach out and they're like, "Oh, it's so disrespectful that you named a beer after." Uh, and actually, uh, one of his cousins reached out to us a while ago, 
six years, seven years ago, and was like, we think it's so cool that you named something after our cousin, you know, and it's just like, oh, nice. right on. Plus, then we get to tell the story of Virgil I. Gus Grissom. <laughs> the I was for uh, Ivan. His middle name was actually Ivan. But in those days, Ivan was uh, actually a slur, right? Like, you didn't call somebody an Ivan unless you wanted to get punched in the face, basically. <laughs> so he, he went by Gus as his nickname. Right. So, But, see, that's the other thing. Like, it, suddenly we go on this, this giant deep dive on the, the neighborhood and Grissom and, like, all these cool things. And it's all connected in our neighborhood. So um, sometimes it's just tongue-in-cheek like the barn phantom, right? Like... It's a hundred-year-old building. Weird stuff happens here all the time. <laughs> yep. Uh, plus, a barn phantom could also be like the souring agent that we use, like because you don't usually want that in your beer, right? But but in a sour beer, that's what people search out for, and so a barn phantom can ruin your beer, like a lactobacillus could ruin your beer in an un, in an unfortunate manner if not applied appropriately. Um, <laughs> but sometimes we'll walk through a door and then we'll go back to walk through it and it's locked or like. We may or may not have seen actual, like, figures, let's say, uh, in the building. Have you named them yet? No, but every night when I leave, I talk very kindly. Because this building at one time was, a, it had different numbers that designated it on the fort map. And it, it was a 300 uh, number, like 328 or 3, I don't remember what the original number was. But when the fort closed, it was 422, and it had been 422 for 50 years, 60 years. It was 422 longer than it was 328. So every night when I leave, I'm like, all right, 422, thanks a bunch. We appreciate it. Hope you keep us safe again tomorrow. Like one day, my oldest son worked in our kitchen for a while. Um, one day, something went just completely haywire in the kitchen and he started like cursing and swearing at the barn phantom. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, 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 he didn't mean it. <laughs> it's like, we don't need to anger 422, yo. Just saying, like, we talk nice to our building. Thank you very much. But so a lot, of, a lot of it comes from you know here, like, and 10 years is a lot of years. So it's a lot of culture that's kind of grown up around us, and a lot of inside jokes that we may have lost the meaning of by now because it's been so long. But uh, yeah, the names are sometimes just a shooting match. Empire Strikes Back, though, yep. right? We have that one's coming. Our, it's the next one we're tapping for Gen Con, and we've made it five times before, six mm -hmm. times before, and actually has hemp in it, oh, which nice. is where the Empire comes from. And this Empire Strikes Back—that's just we're Star Wars geeks. So sure. <laughs> well, who is it? Right. right. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited. Be, my kids are getting into it. Right. Know, just, I always love Chewbacca and the Millennium Falcon. Like that's. I would be in that ship, and I would be like, "Yeah, I'll, whatever you need. You oh, scrub the toilet." My Millennium Falcon shirt. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'll do whatever it takes to be on this ship. You know, no problem. <laughs> so. Oh, that's great. You know, uh, maybe this question is more aimed at you, John. I mean, obviously your lineups are all your successes. Yep. Right? And you said uh, that you had an extensive homebrewing background. So I always love asking the brewers this question, that because those are your successes, there has to be a failure or something that you tried that just came out dead on arrival. Do you have a fun story around something that failed? Or maybe just I mean, didn't come out but turned into something, right? Yeah, I mean, we've had some, some great mistakes, per se, and we've lost a few, too. I mean... To, to keep a quality beer out there, you've got to dump some, first and foremost. But, we don't um, dump a lot. We don't dump a lot. But when we do dump it, it is a lot. <laughs> it hurts. It's like, it hurts. It's like losing a child. Yeah. 
but since he brought up the go the barn phantom goes a series um that that started as a mistake it was a it was a belgium wit that that got lactobacillus in it like they've talked about and all of a sudden hey this is a good beer so tasty (laughs) so tasty and 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 the uh, the market took it too so that's that's the other side you know i can make some great stuff but does it sell yeah that's the big question right like we made a great smoked beer mcqueenie's smoked scotch ale and named after a local folk hero of sorts jim mcqueenie but um who was from scotland and it was a scottish smoked ale and and it was smoked like it was really smoky it would have made the German Rausch beers really proud. And John and I loved it. It was so good. There was like 10 people that loved it. And unfortunately, no one else loved it. So it was here a really long time. We drank most of it. Yep. John and I did. 620 gallons. Oof. No, no. Yeah. But, it's almost like you got to listen to your audience. But at the same time, you're like, come on, man. you got to like this. Yeah, try it. Try yeah. something new. It's like a barbecue beer. I don't know how it won't work. You know? Like, those are some of my favorites that I've heard. Like I was talking to Andrew at Mashcraft to try to make a bacon beer, yeah. and just couldn't render the fat because yeah. yep. just you know. So those are always fun stories around some things. But like I said, it's almost like a Bob Rossism. You know, it's happy accents. Mm-hmm. Yes, happy accents. Our black IPA. Yep, it's fire. Yep. It wasn't supposed to be a black IPA. <laughs> Worked out well though. It was really tasty. Yeah, as long as people love it, right? Mm-hmm. Midnight Rail. Yeah, we brewed it a few times actually. Yeah, and then you try to replicate your mistakes. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's even more challenging. Sure. Sure. Well, let me ask you this. As you guys have kind of built Triton up, as you said, you're going on 11 years. And is, is there any, you know, in the early days, is there any specific breweries around the country or even here locally that you drew inspiration from that kind of said, hey, I like the way the steel, I like this, the brick, exposed brick look? Any, any of those motifs at other breweries that kind of influence what you guys do here? Uh, I guess well, I, I won't say motif, but I'll say style of yeah. um, uh, management or business would be Bell's. Um, John Mallet opened his arms to us before we had brick and mortar, and, yeah. and showed us around and talked about where do you spend money. You know, brand new equipment you want on. We think you want on the packaging line because that's the last thing that touches the beer. You don't want oxygen in it. We can take a used fermenter. We can you know, use bright tank. They're just vessels at that point. So I um, really liked his uh, philosophy and, and, and how he did things. Yeah, he was really kind. I mean, he even opened up, like, the mop closets. You're like, you're going to need mop closets in your new brewery. And we were doing construction at the time and went up and visited them. I think for me it was probably, well, the, I mean, Sierra Nevada. I, I don't know, like, if you can, you know, Len Grossman that started that business. <clears throat> what an amazing inspiration. They, they never really advertised. They did it all by word of mouth. It was all by having exceptional quality. I've probably drunk Sierra Nevada for 20 years and probably purchased hundreds of cases of a variety of their products. And I've had maybe one bad six pack ever. Mm -hmm. Just like their quality control. And I mean, just a total class act. For me, that what really solidified things was. Arrogant Bastard, right? <laughs> Arrogant Bastard Ale from uh, Stone, Stone Brewing Company. Um, here's a beer that we don't care if you like it. We made it for assholes like us. You know, and it's just like, well, first off, I like the hubris quite a bit. But sure. but the, 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 the airbrushed 
packaging they did, like the, the art that they did, like the face that they put out in the market, the, the creativity, like they you were willing to sacrifice maybe a beer that's going to be an awesome, like, you know, not sacrifice. They're willing to, to be innovative and to try to do things that other people would be like, yeah, I don't know that that's a good gamble. And, and uh, Greg Cook, right? Greg Cook mm -hmm. would be like, yeah, I don't care. You know, like, we're going to make these two pepper beers prime and punishment. They're going to be so hot that you're going to be sorry that you drank them, you know. And it's just like, wow, who does that? <laughs> you know, aren't they the ones that tried to make the most bitter beer in the world, I think, like a few years ago? McKellar. Oh, was that McKellar? I think that was McKellar. Okay, so that, that doesn't bear fruit. But he's, uh, well, even we saw him at the Great America, or at the Craft Brewers Conference a few years ago, back when we used to do that religiously. And uh, his heavy metal band was playing at lunchtime and they were pouring stone beer. And it's like, come try out this new stone product and come see our heavy metal band. Oh, and by the way, should we wear kilts or blue jeans? Right? And this was like all on social media. So I responded to him like, are you on an elevated stage or are you playing on the floor? Because if you're on an elevated stage, uh, you probably want to wear the jeans. Because yeah. none of us want to see what's under the kilt. I promise. <laughs> We're real excited to try the beer, though, you know, but I think that I made a pilgrimage before I got into this industry out to uh, North County, uh, San Diego, to visit uh, the, the World Bistro and Gardens uh, of Stone, which was, uh, I wouldn't say a religious experience, but it was very eye-opening as to even what a production brewery of that size can do, you know, as kind of to welcome in their community. Unbelievable, like, desert gardens with a stream running through it and mm -hmm. slow slow food it was like a, a stop on the slow food trail so yeah we'll get you a burger it'll be about 25 minutes we had to go slaughter the cow and <laughs> grind the meat and everything you know it's just like the boz relief that they had of their gargoyle on the wall was just phenomenal like it, it's like they didn't miss a trick and it really enhanced what what my understanding of what a, a production brewery could be uh, yeah, they hit the market at the right time. We thought we were going to be a production brewery too, but <laughs> but the market got really crowded really fast here. So. Yeah, got to turn a pivot. Well, yeah. you, you mentioned some stalwarts like Sierra Nevada and, and uh, John. You mentioned going off Pilgrimage in Germany. What was the fierce craft beer that hooked you? You know, you know, you know. For me, I think it was Fat Tire. It was probably the first time I had a craft just from drinking. You know, what was the cheapest thing? And, yeah, college, right? <laughs> and come, being in Germany it was Bitburger Pills. And we, yeah. It wasn't here yet, but it is today. So I still go back to that beer for sure. It's a great Pilsner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me it was, it, you know, it, it depends on what you consider craft beer. Back in the day, like, if it wasn't American domestic, it was a craft beer, right? Like Guinness for a long time was like, oh, it's Guinness. Like everybody drank Guinness because it was a different color from every other beer that was in the market. I, I, when, when I was growing up, Michelob was actually doing some really, really cool stuff. Like the Michelob did a classic dark lager. It was actually called just classic dark, which was phenomenal. Yep. And I couldn't believe when it went away. Well, people didn't drink dark beer back then, you know, even if they were as high quality as that particular product was. My 21st birthday, uh, I actually drove to West Lafayette to get a keg because I couldn't get any good beer in the little town that I was going to college in. And it was the Michelob Extra Dry. 
<laughs> which was basically just a dry hopped, you know, like yeah. Michelob. I don't even remember if it was a pale or a lager, but it was like so far. And it, you know, it's not a craft beer, but it's also not the standard thing that you would find on the shelf on that day. You know, like it's like, oh, these guys are doing some crazy stuff, you know, yep. like extra dry. What is that? You know, like <laughs> I'll have to look this up at the library because this was pre-Google, right? <laughs> like, and, and now it's like you just go and it's like, oh, what haven't I tried yet? Or what's packaging looks interesting? But, but back in the day, it was like, what's a kind of a deviation from everything else that's out there? I mean, I guess if I had to nail down one, it would probably be McEwen's IPA, which is a Scottish IPA, which I can barely drink today <laughs> because my palate is now jaded and snobby. But uh, <laughs> but when I tasted it, I was like, God, like, again, McEwen's is not a craft beer. It's a big Scottish brewery, but there weren't IPAs on the market back then. And when you got your hands on one, you're like, IPA? I must find out what an India Pale Ale is, you know? Now it's the predominant beer flavor everywhere. So, so you try to not find an IPA, but, yeah. Very good. I mean, uh, you know, I love this community around uh, the state of Indiana. I mean, when you guys started, there was probably, what, between 40 and 50? 30 state, now. 37. We were 37. 37. 37. Now there's 180 plus. I mean, obviously you guys uh, probably, you know, keep up with what's going on in the local scene. Is there any other brewery that's doing some cool things now that you guys, uh, if you could drink a beer other than your own lineup, who who would it be in the community? After after last year, I want to I want to see a lot of other breweries right now. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've lost all our festivals, and I miss that yeah. friendship. Because, like you said earlier, we were, you know, we're, we're in a small pond. We know a right. lot of people. and yeah. Yeah. So it's always fun to go visit other people and try whatever their, their new thing is. You know, I was up at um, Westfield last week, or the, yesterday, and uh, you know, just stopped in at Field just to see what what's on their yeah. menu. You know, just check it out. I did an episode but, with uh, Westfield. I love the reunion. Yeah. It's just kind of flavor here. I have trouble keeping up. Yes. Like people say, oh, such and such a brewery. And I'm like, where are they? Oh, they're just up the road about 15 miles. And I'm like, really? For how long have they been there? You know, it's like, it's unbelievable, the explosion in the market. And there's a lot of really good beer being made in Indiana. Uh, There's also a lot of not really good beer being made in Indiana. But, uh, (laughs) But that's the challenge with beer, right? Like it can be very challenging to produce the same product over and over again uh, and have people recognize it at the same product. The, 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 the margin of error is fairly minimal. People's palates, you know, if you drink a rail splitter and you get one that doesn't taste like the rail splitter that you had last time, you're going to be like, oh, I wonder if there's a quality control issue or I wonder if... What they changed. Yeah, what did they change? And it, maybe we didn't change anything. Maybe that you know, keg has been sitting there since pre-pandemic and it's a year and a half old now and it, of course, doesn't taste like mm. what a fresh rail splitter tastes like. I, I think we have, there's a lot of, I, I enjoy drinking a lot of people's beer. I mean, I love uh, Black Acre, I think, continues to do a great job. I think Sun King does a great job. I love their specialties and seasonals that they do. In fact, I was fairly sad, went out to dinner the other night and saw Grapefruit Jungle was on the menu and I was like, oh, I haven't had it this year and then, oh, we're sold out of it. And I'm like, Damn. Okay. And the next three beers I chose were also sold out. So, um, it's, it's, and it's hard to keep up with who people are, who's working for who now. 
because there's a lot of talented brewers that have ended up at smaller breweries. Talented brewers who, I, you know, when I had a life outside the brewery, I used to follow and be interested in. And I'm still interested in them, but I haven't tasted the products that they're producing in their new digs, so to speak. It's like, oh, you're with who now? Like, right, right, right. But uh, even Big Lug, like mm-hmm. Eddie Som and Scott, those guys are doing a great job on their beers. I, I, I yep. always look forward to whatever they're doing. And there are a couple of their regulars that I, their regular offerings that I'm just like, yeah, I'll take that one every time because it's just a, a great product that they're putting out there. I, you look along, around at the longevity, and I don't want to say that the new guys aren't any good, because I don't know. I mean, legitimately, I haven't had a lot. I hear great things about Gugman House. I would love to try their beer. Eventually, I'll get a chance to do that. But, um, but the old guys that are still around, the old guys, they're still around for a reason in a lot, a lot of ways, sure. right? Like, it's because they've consistently made good beer, and they've developed brands that uh, are recognizable, and for good reason, because... It's an impossible business that we're in. I mean, it legitimately is. Like, the moving pieces are, oh, where, what is there a shortage of now? Oh, we can't get cans this year? Oh, hops are going up or going down? Oh, malt this year is different? Like, especially when you're working with the agricultural product. The one thing that we know that's steady and always the same is the water, <laughs> right? Like, we filter it, we RO it. Like, we know that the water is the same every time, which is good because it's, like 96% of beer is water. So that, that kind of helps smooth out the rough edges, particularly for us. But but that doesn't have any impact on, oh, this year the malt's stickier. Or uh, you're going to find out that the you know the, sugar, the amount of sugar after you uh, process it is going to be less. You're going to have to use more malt in your malt bill so the cost goes up. Or it's harder to mash in because it's stickier and it gets caught up in your in your system. Like, you're, you know, it's like... It's, it's so... And then, and then there's all the supplier issues. Yeah, we can get you that. Is six weeks uh, too far out? What do you mean six weeks? Like, we want it last week, you know? Right. Or it's out of stock. So particularly with, like, you know, the, it, it just, it's, it's, it's impossible. And then you've got the brewing business, and then you have all the other businesses that go around it, right? Like, you have sales and distribution is a whole different thing that you have to have experience and knowledge about dealing with and, <laughs> and how the three-tier system works. And if you're running front of the house, well, then you have, that's another business, right? Now you've got the retail aspect of it. And it's just like, it's like on and on and on. It's like this endless volume of stuff that you have to know how to do. John is great with thermodynamics and hydrodynamics. And, you know, like, that's a very particular sort of thing. Refrigeration, like the glycol system that helps keep our, our, our wort at the appropriate temperature all the time. Like, the, the, the layers of knowledge, like the both the depth and the breadth of that knowledge is just it's un it's unbelievable and it's changing like oh now we're using you know cryo hops or now we're using like there's all these other things or there's extracts and there's quick starter yeasts and there's like all the you know technology applied to that same thing so it's like i mean it's some days it's it's virtually impossible to keep up it's like okay what do i spend what time i have today reading about you know front of the house management back of the house management <laughs> finance like you know like where to distribution and you're like it's it's, it's crazy like there's it's big and anybody that's been around for a long time is you know like well that's, that's, most that's, respect. A, that's a fun segue into the next question which is you know is owning a brewery different than you thought it would be you know because you just you just listed a, a ton of stuff yeah. there Dave that you know maybe some 
avenues that you didn't have to consider I early think, on. And from yeah. your perspective, John, I just, I just want to make the beer, right? right? Exactly. When we, I think about when we opened, it was very much, I think, what we expected it to be. Yeah. I don't know that the roller coaster ride over the last 10 years was anything what we expected. No. Yeah. We, I mean, we're, yeah. I mean, there's things that you know are going to happen, like federal audits by the Alcohol Tobacco Taxation Bureau. And you build your business with the idea of knowing that they can come in at any time and look at all your stuff. And, and you better do it right because it's the feds and your yeah. name's on it. And federal prison isn't a real cozy, or I guess could be a real cozy place. But you don't want to end up there because you're there. not paying attention or you're doing it wrong. Right. But So that was like kind of a given, right? But then, you know, things like the pandemic. Oh, you can go to 50% capacity inside and... And then they tell you you can go to, but you have to maintain social distancing. Well, now you can go to 75% capacity inside, but we can't move our external walls and we still have to maintain social distancing. So we're really at the same capacity that we were when we were at 50% capacity, yeah. right? So, and then we had to be like epidemiologists all of a sudden. <laughs> we opened a grocery store, so we had to be grocers during yep. the shutdown, like in a million years. I, you can't that, plan for that. Yeah. And it's like we basically opened a grocery in five days. We put a business plan together in five days that should have taken 60 reasonably. And we didn't know crap about groceries. It's like, wait, we only make one to three percent on this? <laughs> like, we're busting our asses to make this happen. Oh, but we can sell beer and hot food and other things that we actually make a little better margin on. And those groceries bring people in. And they provide a service to the neighborhood. People can't get toilet paper. We've got 15 cases in the back, right? Let's pull up, open your trunk. We'll load them in the trunk for you. So uh, we didn't know that we were going to have to know how to do that. Nope. Like, just that, and, and it seems like when we opened <clears throat> number 37, if you drew a 10-mile circle, 10-mile radius with us being like the dead center of that radius, there were eight breweries and tasting rooms in that 10-mile radius. Now there's more than 40. 40 in a 10 mile radius right and it's like yeah when we opened it was a it was it was wide open and within about three to five years it was not wide open anymore plus the distributors bringing in out of state i won't name any of them but one of our former distributors was bringing in probably 30 to 40 breweries a year for years mm -hmm. so all of a sudden the market went from being you get a choice of like 12 or 15 craft beers on the on the shelf to there's two aisles at the at the grocery now or whatever which is great because there's diversity but i mean i don't know why a, a brewery from connecticut should get more love than a brewery from indiana right, right. like when you buy a, a premium uh product that's made by um inbev uh 60 cents of every dollar goes out of the community. When you buy beer from a local brewery like us or Sun King or any of our friends in, in the industry, that 60 cents stays in the community. And it's so like, why should, why should these big distributors who tend to make all the money because they're in the sweet spot of the three-tier system, um, and they have overhead too, but they tend to do better than the retailers and the producers do. Why are they bringing in these other products that, you know, if you focused on the products that you had, you could make that same dough. You wouldn't have all the overhead of bringing in those out-of-state uh, companies, marketing them because nobody's heard of, you know, Joe's Brewery from Arkansas or whatever. And, uh, and the money stays here. So, but that's not how it worked for 
six years <laughs> in our market. And I'm not going to say Yingling was kind of the touchstone, but that was the biggest one that was brought in. And that one year took 287,000 cases of Indiana beer didn't get sold that year because because Yingling, you know. It was the biggest corporate launch in the history of the state of Indiana, and it was also the biggest corporate decline in the state of Indiana. But it doesn't make up for those 287,000 cases of Indiana beer that didn't get sold because because we had to bring in a brewery from Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know. So sure, sure. Which everyone realized, oh yeah, it was better when I couldn't get it here because it had some nostalgia or whatever. No offense to uh, Yingling, but I, I hear they're <laughs> not very kind to the local breweries in Pennsylvania. So. It'll roll off their big shoulders. <laughs> I've heard you guys, uh, especially you did mention community uh, multiple times, and especially where you guys are in Fort Bend. I imagine when you open this place, there wasn't those minute, as much construction going on around yet. You know, on my day job as an advisor, you know, you get very involved in your clients' lives, right? You know, the, you get to know the kids and their personal side of things. And what does that word community mean to you guys here as you've kind of built Trident up, and now you have what looks like is going to be a serviceable, walkable market to your, to your operation? I guess to start off, uh, the answer is is when we moved in here, that we were fields. We were the first business in the on the fort that was open to the public. But there was all nothing but fields, and now there's 70 plus homes here, 60 plus homes there. You know, it's 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 been nice. And with the one thing the pandemic did bring, and us bringing in the grocery was we changed some of our clientele, moving from the business people that come in here after work to to people that walk here. Sure. And it's been nice. I think the kitchen helped that too. Yeah, I think so. But um, you know, we, we're always trying to give back to the community whenever we find a, a niche that we could do it. You know, we're, we're having another blood drive here in a few weeks. And, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, they're there. They support us. We got to support them. Well, that's it. I mean, that's when you kind of get your own crowd here in and around your operation. I got to think that's kind of special. I saw that when I went down to Tax Man's Death and Taxes Day, and this neighborhood coming out and. Even in field where I just was recently, um, they got a sense of community. Grand Junction, you name it. There's yeah. all these places now, or even Mashcraft's uh, downtown Indy operation, where now the townhomes were all going around, and you get this walkability, and it's yeah. now you got to think about how do I t- turn and pivot my business model to service that growing community, right? Correct. Have you guys always had food as a part of Trident, or has it been something you guys have explored here recently? I, I saw the post today about the, the barbecue. And, Damn, that look good. Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> it turned out really good. <laughs> we had uh, we started with food trucks. Um, I kind of grew up in kitchens, and I didn't want to be in the restaurant business. John had no interest in the restaurant business. It was always about the beer. It's still very much about the beer. Uh, we do everything else we do so that we can make the beer. Uh, uh, the food trucks were amazing because we had about a dozen shifts a week and we'd have two an operator for lunch an operator for dinner and the menu would change basically twice a day we'd talk on our social media about who was going to be here the the food trucks would talk on their social media about the fact that they were going to be here so there was a lot of kind of guerrilla marketing that was going on uh and we got i mean some of our closest friends are former food truck people our new chef uh he was out here vending before he actually had a food truck because we tasted his food and was like yeah, you're just going to set up a dining fly and a smoker? Sounds great. When do you want to come out? You know. <laughs> and then we just kept in touch for the last seven years, and, and he was looking for an opportunity, and we had to snatch him up for sure. But uh, just because he's – and here he is now. Just because he's an amazing uh, 
barbecue chef, executive chef, barbecue pit master, award-winning executive chef, uh, very creative guy, young, enthusiastic, full of energy, like all the things I'm not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, when, when we had the opportunity to pick up what, what essentially was a free agent at the time, it was just like, yeah, this is like the perfect fit. And he's been developing his own hot sauces and, and in addition to his chefing, um, and he, when we first kind of connected, he took a lot of his ideas from our marketing because he's like, yeah, there's nobody that's marketing barbecue sauce or hot sauces that look like a craft beer kind of model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there, he always, always felt like he wanted to be part of the team and then the opportunity. But we opened the kitchen in twenty, end of twenty seventeen. It would have been earlier than that, but the health department got a little confused because we were always designated a restaurant because we made root beer floats and we had to be designated a restaurant to put the ice cream in the root beer. <laughs> so uh, so when we applied to them to open a kitchen and a restaurant, they're like, you, you do that already. So they got all kinds of confused and it took forever. And finally, when we helped cl- kind of clear the air about what our, our intention was, uh, the kitchen was open in December, which is like the worst time of the year to open a kitchen. We wanted to really open it in September. Sure. Um, and then, uh, so we've been open about three and a half years in there. Uh, it really was in response to the food truck industry kind of, I don't want to say fizzling out, but changing. Right. Most of the food trucks today bend downtown, the ones that exist. They realize that driving up to the east side, even if it's eight miles, it's eight miles each way and everything's getting rattled on the truck and suddenly you've got to fix a fryer that wasn't really designed to ride on a truck all the time. So, and and the uh, scratch truck, which was one of the originals, uh, Matt Kornmeyer, was actually rated one of the top ten in the country at one time, uh, had a background in finance and he put together a number of business models after he was into it already. And he's like, David, there's no way that we could make money in this industry the way that it's set up in Indiana. Because they also had to rent kitchen space. They weren't allowed to do actual cooking on their truck. They were only allowed to put things together to serve it. So they had, everybody had to lease commercial kitchen space in addition to all the overhead that came from the truck. And it was just a lose-lose proposition for the owner-operators. And like the early generation of those ladies and gentlemen that were in that industry... We're like road warriors, man. Like, I, I think, unbelievable. They were working the hottest weather out there and produce amazing stuff. And the coldest weather. We had trucks freeze up out there in the wintertime. It was just like, that. Like those chefs and, and their employees, they, they worked under the worst conditions year-round, right? But they had a window, which we don't have in our kitchen. <laughs> so they got to actually see what was going on in the world around them. And it was always different wherever they went to bend. So, I mean, they, they, they really were like journeymen slash journey women. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, have knives will travel. Like, it was unbelievable. But when we started getting tough to get them out here, we knew that the only way that we could survive was to do our own food service. The challenge was it had to be food that was at least the equivalent level of quality of the beer that we we're producing because... If we're going to do it, you got to do it 100%, right? Like, we're not going to half-ass it be like, you know, here's chips with a little <laughs> cheese on it, and here you go, there's nachos. That's that's not what we do. That's not what we've ever done. And, you know, 
even in our brewing, we, we tend to, to stay away from the, the, the fast starter yeasts and the things like we really stick for the most part to, to more traditional brewing uh, processes. And, and, and that was kind of the idea behind the kitchen too. The cool thing though is everybody, every time I have a new employee that comes in, we have a new employee that comes in in the kitchen that was like, I've never worked in a kitchen this clean before. And I'm always like, well, you know, I, I maybe, you know, know how to run a kitchen, but I've learned to clean from the brewers who like, they're, 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 they're cleaning on a like microbiotic level. And we're going to do the same in here because, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. And that's translated well into our relationship with the health department too, because I don't know that we've ever had a single, we've, I don't know that we've gotten ever below 100% on a uh, health inspection here, just because it's like, let's do it to the 10th degree, or the nth degree, because I don't want anybody to ever come in and be like, I smell dirty grease in here. No, you don't. Every <laughs> surface has been scrubbed once a month, I promise you. Like, we have a weekly, daily, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly cleaning schedule, just like these guys do. So it's like... You know, you got to do it all the right way. And even John, who just started with us, our new chef, was like, wait, you do this every night? I'm like, yeah, man. He goes like, I've never seen a kitchen this clean. And I'm like, and we're going to keep it that way, brother. Absolutely. That's <laughs> like, like this, is, this is how the brewers do it, yo. Let me show you how. So, Gotcha. Well, one of the things I, uh, you know, in my day-to-day job as a, as a wealth advisor, you know, I just try to educate my clients. There's just four challenges to building wealth and first of it is just organization right so i mean if i can just get somebody organized that's already ahead of the game yep. there as it pertains to what you guys experience in the brewery business as you mentioned the market's got a lot of competition a lot of new people it's hard to keep up what is one of the challenges that you may face john as far as creating that next great blend that you hope will kind of cut through the noise and and resonate with people in such a crowded market yeah i mean uh... I guess the way my mindset uh, is on, on new new products is I have to get that insp- inspiration and it's something you just can't pop up you know it's just something sometimes you gotta wait for it and then once you do get it you, you hope that the market takes it right. <laughs> so it's we do a lot of experimenting we've got a little three uh, three barrel uh, combi- combination tank that we can play with the yeast and fruits and we, you know do the different flavorings and then we can just try it out here and see what the market does and then we can play or run gotcha now as, as part of being a you know brewer and you probably speak to this too dave is that you, you kind of have this mad scientist yeah. kind of uh methodology there uh, and there's a lot of new trends that are coming up then whether it's the, the sours market or even what 450 is doing with the celestial stuff is there any trends that you see that are you wanting to explore or just continue on the same path that you always uh, have there's, there's nothing on my list at the moment, but you know, tomorrow's another day. Um, the slushy stuff doesn't excite me at all. To be honest, I want to have, I want to produce beer. I want to, like David said, a little more traditional. Um, we're we're mainly hop focused, and, and then some sours for sure. Um, but I still, you know, I can still make a good English ESB. Um, <laughs> I think we have them on. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know what my next. My next project is right now. It's okay. The the well loggers. Yeah, right? I was just say are the real are the new trend right now, and it turns out that people like craft lager. I I like yeah, I legitimately did not like. I was not a fan of a of a premium lager uh, like this uh, until I had ours. And part of it is John and I were talking. I I don't know that I've ever had a lager that's this fresh, right? Like a, 
you don't know how long it's been sitting on the shelf, right? So, and when you drink it this fresh, and you can actually taste the the hops and the you know the the malts and the little bit of corn that's in there, it's like wow, this is actually a very drinkable beer. I would, you know, I don't know that I would default to it, but I could certainly drink a couple of them no problem and enjoy it very much before I move on to the next thing. You know, I I hate to drink more than one or two of the same beer anyway because then I get to try more stuff if I and, yeah, move this, around the playing board a little bit. This is one thing I have been working on as a logger yeah. because. I'm not known as a lager brewer, and it's something I haven't done. The so, Pilsner. Oh. well, we've been yeah, we started playing around with some Czech style Pilsners, and then oh, I just so this good. premium and so good. And I mean, like that's pretty that, fun. It's hard to be more traditional than like a Czech Pilsner yeah. or a, a premium lager, really. Um, but they don't taste like anybody else's, no. right? They have, and part of that's yeah, our water, that. this is, and part of unique. that's John and, and Dane in, in the back, and they're you know mad scientist stuff. I think a lot of times where the inspiration comes from is like really unexpected places. So like Mm -hmm. we do dessert, a lot of, not a lot, but we do a few dessert beers over the course of the summer or over the course of the year. Uh, We do a coffee beer, we do some other things. And, you know, one night, I I don't even know what it was that, oh, I went out to dinner and they had uh, rainbow sherbet on the, on the restaurant menu, right? So I came in the next day and I'm like... John, have we thought about rainbow sherbet? As like, you know, and it's just like, all right, maybe, you know, like, I don't know how we duplicate that flavor exactly, but we, you know, it's an interesting thought. So you never know where that, we did a, a beer we called hot chocolate a few years ago, which was, I think it was our standard dead eye stout, right? But we used habaneros and Mexican chocolate and maybe there was something else in there and it was a little bit spicy a little bit chocolatey and and it was just like it was fire like it was total fire and you know it was inspired by mexican chocolate yeah. dessert you know <laughs> it's like we're going to do a chocolate fudge brownie stout this year yep. for uh around christmas time holidays um and we haven't done that before but I mean, who doesn't love you know the chocolate fudge brownie and, and if you can get it in a glass that tastes also a little bit Why not? Like yeah. a good stout then boom you know there you are so oh that's great that's great well uh let me ask you this so i i think there's two types of people and when i have when my clients either hire me or i hire them you know i want clients to think abundantly have a growth mindset it's 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 difficult especially coming out of last year it's easy to have kind of this scarcity mindset be fearful of things but with you guys being around as long as you have, how do you maintain that kind of growth mindset where you haven't kind of gotten out over your skis and you've been able to manage it? Because I work with a lot of business owners and growth can be fickle. Yeah. You know, it can, it can be the greatest thing, but if you go too quick, then you can kind of get over your skis. So how, how have you guys managed, you know, being around as long as you have and growing and continuing that growth mindset? It, it, it's, it's been a challenge. You know, when we first opened, we were, we were, we were on the tip of those skis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'd... You want to keep up with what's out there, but you know it was it was tough trying to grow there for a while. Still is, still is. Now, now we're becoming. We don't have the growth anymore. But we're more pivotal. We've got to be. Mm-hmm. We got to be turning, looking every direction. Yeah. Because this market is changing. Changes. Yeah. It's that's the only real constant, right? So we we added a three-way liquor license, so we can start doing, so we can be more to more people around us, right? At one point, we were a beer destination and food trucks. Right. And now we have a captive audience of 130 homes and 440 apartments and condos down the street. And a Hilton hotel that's going to be opening 
probably the end of next year. That's what that giant mess is that they're building at the end uh, of the road. True sure. Hilton Hotel. Uh, that's 90 room hotel without a food service. So we've been closed Mondays and Tuesdays our whole life. Well, at least the whole life of the company. Um, and now it's like it really would with the homes and everybody around us. I mean, it seems like it would be a logical time to go to seven days a week. And then you look at the labor market and you go, well, we have a hard time staffing the hours that were open. How can we expand two more days when that really means adding probably three or four people in the kitchen and doubling the size of our serving staff in a lot of ways? So um, that, that's not going to happen in the current market, right? No, but, isn't that interesting how, yeah. you know, coming out of the pandemic, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends, down, especially down in Florida, that are restaurant owners or bar owners, and it's just like, Told me a story about him hiring four people in one day yep. and all four no show the yep. first shift. I'm like, we have about you, a. You came in right. and you applied and he gave you the job and you know yep. the first. first we have shift. about a, for onboarding in the kitchen. We have about a twelve and a half percent success rate, which is just like it's. I mean, and, and just like you're saying, interview, negotiate wages, set up a schedule, like everything that goes with that. I mean, and then no call, no show, and. and so I think that people don't remember that before the pandemic, we also had a labor shortage. I mean, like legitimately in Indiana, we were at about four and a half percent unemployment. And they say that about 5% of the population is unemployable, right? So we were right there on that line. And, it, and a lot of the candidates that came through were very short lived because yeah, they were part of that 5% that are unemployable and we just happened to hire them for three days before like, uh, no, this is not going to work for anybody or they don't show up or they show up the first shift and they never come back or, I mean, I mean it just yeah. it over and over and over again. And that was pre-pandemic. Right. And then the pandemic hit and one of the industries that treated their people the worst and traditionally has always treated their people the worst is the hospitality industry. So a lot of my friends that were like, middle managers in restaurants and corporate, uh, especially the corporate chains and stuff or, or, uh, or owned restaurants or were general managers and they suddenly either the restaurant was gone or everybody got laid off and they shut down and without any regard to, you know, what are our people going to do? We were lucky enough that on Friday, March 13th, when everything shut down, we laid everybody off except us. We just didn't get paid. But on Tuesday, we hired everybody back, like legitimately the entire team, because we couldn't do the groceries and the hot meals and the beer sales. Like John and I couldn't do that by ourselves. John and Dane and I couldn't do that by ourselves. Like everybody came back and everybody worked the whole pandemic and people knew where they were going. And like there was a certain amount of loyalty. Their friends had nothing. They were trying to figure out how they were going to pay the bills and they were here working and you know knew what they were doing and knew where they were going tomorrow and so i mean everybody that's here we have a lot of longevity on our on our team because people it be, really becomes like a family and because we try to look out for them we didn't want to lay anybody off but that's what everybody was doing on that friday and then we're like uh we're gonna need some labor <laughs> to, to be able to run this next business that we're launching uh the grocery part um so everybody came back but a lot of people that were those middle managers are now that are my friends are, are like doing construction or they're doing manufacturing because those jobs didn't go away. Those jobs have benefits that the hospitality industry doesn't have. Uh, 
they get you know benefits like health insurance. Oh yeah, good luck with that if you're in the in the you know server or in the kitchen sure. like so. And they have zero interest in coming back to hospitality because they're in an industry that when the chips were down, they could feed their kids and pay their rent still or their mortgages. So, so when people talk about you know the labor shortage, I'm like, there's there's always been a labor shortage. Like the difference is that some of the good people that were in our industry are not because they'd be good people in any industry. And they went to industries that traditionally have a lot more respect for the people that help make the business run, you know? So, mm. but it still sucks, <laughs> right? Because the people that weren't with us don't know that we're, we try to be stand-up guys all the time and we really try to look out for our own. So, uh, yeah. So it's like, well, uh, we didn't really lay anybody off uh, during the, oh, that's great. They're going to pay me 50 cents or more down the street and like, well, what if I paid you 50 cents more? Oh, but downtown I can... I'm like, okay, whatever, man. We're just playing a game. I'm pay, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm paying you way above what is reasonable for the job that we're asking you to do. And okay, like, if that's not you, then... Do you know anybody? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, last question. Um, you know, when I sit down with prospective clients for the first time, I, I always ask them the same question. You know, if we were to work together, what would need to take place over the next three years, whether it be financially, professionally, emotionally, to where at that three-year mark we can look back on our time spent together and say with absolute certainty that it was it was valuable. Yeah. As it pertains to what you guys are doing with Trade, you know, if we sat down doing it on the podcast three years from now, what do you want to see accomplished over these next three years where you can look back and say, hey, we're, on the, we're continuing on the right path, yep. we're doing what we set out to do, what would that be? Yeah, I think the big thing right now is just... Uh getting more of our not capital but maybe yeah but uh, just getting things paid off getting just making the business stronger moving it forward you know we're, we're always trying to push our distribution hopefully we'll get post pandemic uh, back into where we were distributing again yeah I think that's the um, big thing for me it's the distribution yep. piece. Uh, pandemic not only hurt us it also hurt the distributors uh, and there's been a fair amount of reorganization going on. Monarch, who was and is probably still the biggest distributor in the state, oh, yeah. was purchased recently by Reyes, which is the biggest distributor in the country, maybe in the world. Uh, they own distributors everywhere. Mm. And that's caused not only with the pandemic, but also with that mega change that happened down the street over there. Um, that's has sent ripples through the distribution, other distribution uh, companies in the, in the area. So uh, there's been a lot of reorganizing. There's been a lot of brands kind of moving around and, oh, we don't work well with them, so we're going to work with somebody else. And so there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of balls in the air for the distributors as well. We, uh, we've changed distributors in 2019. Terrible timing. <laughs> uh, and started to build the new distribution uh, plan and then the pandemic hit and shut everything down so then we basically started over again this year yep. right so uh, in a lot of ways that's been a challenge uh, I mean first off oh we have to start over again yep. you know it's like so there's all this energy that you have to put into it at the beginning of that well and you have to consistently put energy into it but um that would 
that's like probably the biggest challenge right now, I think, if you look at it from a corporate standpoint. Yep. Then the next thing is like, what do we want to be when we grow up? I mean, <laughs> right? Like what we want to be is a distribution brewery, but what the market supports today is, is not that. Uh, so what does that mean? So, so who are we now? So, and in three years, who are we going to be? Well, we're, we're going to be a neighborhood restaurant. We're going to be a production brewery. We're going to be a retail operation. We're going to be a <laughs> distribution, uh, yep. working with the distribution, uh, Community relations, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's all those things, I think. But the, 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 the biggest thing that will hit the bottom line is the distribution, for sure. That and and uh, we've been leasing this space for 10 years uh, with the option to basically lease it till all eternity. Um, but recently, yesterday, we sat down with our landlord and... We were like, all right, let's talk about maybe purchasing the building. And we should have done that a long time ago. And we did. Eight years ago, we sat down with them, and the number that came back were like, nah, the price per square foot's way better than that. We'll, 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 we'll come back and talk to you. But in the meantime, right, the neighborhood's exploded. The Purple Line, which is part of the new mass transit system, just got funding two days ago. We should have talked to them last week before the Purple Line got funded. Um, so all those things are going to raise the value of the theoretically raise the value of the property. Um, but if we buy the building, then we could convert a lot of our short-term loans, which we don't have a lot of, but we have enough of to long-term, uh, you know, 30-year kind of terms rather than five-year kind of terms, sure. bringing up some some uh, operating capital and giving us the opportunity to maybe do some improvements around here that we've been wanting to do for a long time or uh, give us the ability to you know, hire an additional salesperson to go out and, and beat the street and, and help with the distribution uh, and sales part of it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think in a lot of ways you're constantly redefining who you are because the market's constantly changing. So, you know, if you ask the question in six months, we'll probably be in a different place and be like, you know, <laughs> what we really need to do this at this point is... Yeah. Hire another mad scientist to come up with even cooler ideas, you know, like someone who's not tired and jaded like we are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic, Jess. Well, this has been fun, man. I appreciate your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Jess. Thanks for sitting down. All right, come and visit them down here in Fort Bend, Drive Brewing. Come, come give it a taste. Great food, great atmosphere, great people, man. Until next time. Cheers, Cheers. 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 That's it. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. For the latest on Financial Views with Local Brews, please check out our website at financialviewswithlocalbrews.com. You can also find us on YouTube via our channel there under the same name, Financial Views with Local Brews, as well as follow us on all of our social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, where you can like and connect with us throughout the craft beer universe that we're trying to explore here in the great state of Indiana. As always, cheers. The next round's on me, and I look forward to seeing you for future episodes. Bye, everyone.